about three, or sorry, three, not three, eight or nine years ago, uh, I went surfing in Tofino on Thanksgiving weekend. Amy and I decided that we were going to go catch some fall waves, and we'd been surfing in Hawaii before, and we felt fairly confident that we could go out and at least catch a couple of waves, no problem. And so we left from the hotel where we were staying, and we rented some gear, and we head out to hit the waves. We forgot to check the weather. It was a dark and gloomy day on the water. I mean, the sun was nice, and it was bright, but the water was this deep, dark gray. And as we ran out and then began to paddle, we realized that those once small waves off in the distance were actually awfully tall. The fish were swimming above our heads, let's just say that. And so we went out and we began to paddle and we got to this point where we had to decide what to do. When you get towards the wave break where the swell comes and starts to turn into a wave, you only have a couple options of what to do. You can either get pummeled, into the dirt, or you can try to duck under the waves. And if you're good at this technique, it actually gets you through quite easily. The problem is I'm terrible at it. And so sure enough, wave after wave, I just got slammed down into the beach. And by the time we were done after about two hours, I was covered in sand burn, my shoulders were sore, and I was beaten. Amy's a little bit better. She could make it through, and she got to catch a couple of waves. But what's interesting is when you do this dive under the water, you don't even actually have to be a good swimmer or a particularly good surfer because what happens is as the swell goes over you, the buoyancy of your board, of your wetsuit, if you're in a place like Tofino, and your body will just bring you up on the other side. And then once you're beyond the break, you can sort of catch your breath and wait for the right wave. Why do I bring this up? I mean, what does this have to do with church? Well, because I think surfing and this idea of diving through the waves paints a beautiful metaphor for what it looks like when the early church had to face some difficult things. As the early church began to establish itself in their community, we saw that their pushing out into society began to cause a lot of waves. But these waves weren't always just good ones, but they were also ones of opposition and persecution and frustration. And so what the early church had to learn how to do was keep themselves buoyant in order to push through so they wouldn't get slammed and beat up and washed out of life and ministry. And that's something that I think is helpful for us to consider because while none of us will probably ever face the persecution that the early church did, we will all face places where we'll face fears and doubt and some opposition. And we need to figure out how, as we paddle out into the life that God is calling us to, how we're going to get through those different difficult waves. 
And so if you've got a Bible, I would love for you to open it up and join me in Acts chapter 5, where we're going to be looking at verses 17 to 42. And we're going to consider not just did they stay afloat, but how did the Christians get through these difficult times to not just survive, but to thrive? As you're turning there, let me remind you also of where we are. The church has begun to grow and grow. There's thousands of believers who now are following Jesus and they're being led by 12 apostles and a number of other leaders and they're going out into the community. They're going out into the community to share the hope that they have in Jesus. They're bringing healing and wonderful teaching that they will believe that the people, if they would adopt, would see a life transformation so that they could thrive. The problem was, though, that they're in hostile territory, so to speak, at least religiously. While culturally Jews in a Jewish place, they were now standing and saying something different than the Jewish leaders would have to say about who God is and how he's working and what's taken place. And so these apostles and all these believers are going out and saying, look at Jesus, remember that guy y'all killed? He's actually the Messiah, the chosen one of God who you're looking out for. And the healing that we're bringing you and the hope that we're giving you and the instruction that you're supposed to follow is all coming from him. And as they have given that teaching, what's happening is people are starting to get excited. They're not facing this with doubt or with guilt, but with a sense of relief at the God who loves them, at the Savior who's come for them, and at a better way of living. But it goes in contrast in many ways to the Jewish leaders. And so as we pick up in verse 17 here today, we see what the response of the Jewish leaders is to the apostles, disciples, and those who are gathered around them. So after the disciples have done some healing, they've got crowds gathered around them, we read this. Then the high priests and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. So at daybreak, they entered the temple courts as they had been told, and they began to teach people. But when the high priest and his associate arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, which is the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and they sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers didn't find the apostles there, so they went back and reported. They said, we found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. They're rightfully scared and worried. So that then, though, someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. So at that, the captain with his officers went and they brought the apostles with them. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. Notice the popularity that the apostles are getting. The apostles were then brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. They said, we gave you strict orders not to teach in his name. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. But Peter and all the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than human beings. 
The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious, and they wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, who was a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the apostles be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Theodos appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 people rallied to him. But he was killed, and all the followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, there was Judas the Galilean, who appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He, too, was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in this present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. So his speech persuaded them, and they called the apostles in and had them flogged. When they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. The apostles then left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that is Jesus the Messiah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. God, we thank you for this example in history. Holy Spirit, would you now speak through me and to each one of our hearts to allow us to hear what we need to receive from your word today. God, though we will never face the persecution these believers face, we do face opposition and doubt and fear. And God, we ask that you would do something in our hearts so we can fight against those things, so that we would ignore the crashing waves and dive in and be held buoyant by our trust in you. We thank you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what I notice as I begin to read through this passage is that there's sort of three different sets of oppositional waves and persecution that the apostles face. And, and in each case, the de- apostles decided to believe or do a certain thing which helped them to thrive in the midst of the circumstances. It's actually quite interesting, uh, a historian who writes on this period of history who has nothing to do with Christianity once said, it makes no sense save the fact that there is a God and he was at work that the early church went beyond being established. History tells us that these individuals would go through such extraordinary opposition, all of these apostles being martyred for their faith, yet the early church grew. It went from just being established as a few people to being a movement that extends to us today. So certainly there must have been something going on to get all these people through it. And this passage gives us a little bit of an indication of what that was. We see in verse 17 and 18, though, that there is this first wave of opposition. It said, The high priests and all his associates who were a member of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy, and so they arrested the apostles and put them into public jail. 
So right off the bat, we, we see, of course, the, the apostles, the disciples of Jesus, they're creating this movement. They're, they're healing people physically, emotionally, spiritually, relationally, economically, meeting the community's needs, pouring themselves out. And because of that, people start to like them. These people are making our lives better. They're offering us something that we don't have. They're giving us hope when we've been waiting for hope for centuries as a people. And this should be great. The religious leaders should be excited. Their people are getting cared for. Things are going well. People are no longer sick. But the problem is the people who are bringing that hope and healing aren't them. And so they get jealousy. They get jealousy that rises up within them and begins to pour out. Proverbs 6.34 says, Jealousy makes a man furious. And that's exactly what we see here. It wasn't just like this green with envy moment where they're like, oh, I wish that was us. Oh, I, I think we deserve better attention because we're more educated than these fishermen and tax collectors and group of sort of no-name men. No, it goes beyond just this sense of jealousy to a sense of rage. What we're going to do is we're going to imprison them. And prison in our day and age isn't particularly nice. I don't know if any of you have visited one, but it's not a particularly nice place. But in this day, prison was much worse. A hole in the wall where you had to sit and live with poor food, no running water, and the situation was just awful. That's where we're going to put them, they said. Because the crowd should be gathering around us, not them. Now, this is pretty amazing what happens next. God decides, he says, no, 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 this isn't the time. I'm going to deliver them. And so that night, we see that God sends an angel to free the apostles from their imprisonment. I don't know how this works. Did the guards fall asleep? Were they on break and a shift switch that they didn't notice this? But whatever happened, however God orchestrated this, he opened the doors by the presence of one of his angels who he sent, and the apostles walk on out. And I assume they go back to gather with the believers before they go into the temple courts. Now, we can't miss this, because I love this. There's a really great sense of humor that takes place right here. You see... The Sadducees believed that there were angels because they were depicted in uh, ancient Jewish texts, but they didn't believe that the angels of God could actually do anything in the lives of his people. They thought that angels just sat up in heaven and floated around and worshipped God, but they never intervened. They actually ignored large portions of their own text. If we read the Old Testament, we see time and time again, God sends angels to deliver his people. But the Sadducees didn't really like that part. And so they left it out. And so here in the, midst, in the middle of their midst, and as they're trying to push against what God is doing, God plays a little bit of a prank on them. I'm going to send an angel. And he's going to do exactly what you don't think he can do. And he delivers the apostles. And God will go on and he'll do this two more times in the book of Acts. We'll see in chapter 12, he does it with Peter. In chapter 16, he'll do it with Paul and Cyrus. And he loves to move on in. And what God's doing here isn't just opening up the door to allow his message to get out. I mean, there is thousands of Christian believers at this point who will go and bring the message out. What I believe God is doing here isn't just freeing some people, but he's providing hope and encouragement. He's showing what he can get the people through. The biggest, most elite 
religious and social leaders in your day, in your country, even they don't have the power to contain what I'm going to do in and through you. That's the message that God sends. And so he frees the people from evil and wrongdoing and he unleashes them and says, go, go and bring my message, which they go to do. Now, I think one of the challenges that we face that's different from the apostles is that we are in a place where we don't really believe that God has the power to intervene. I think a lot of us live our lives a lot more closely to the Sadducees than to the apostles. The apostles did have a benefit, sure, they walked alongside of Jesus. They saw him nailed to the cross, they saw him go into the grave, they saw him rise again. And I do think, in a way, that gave them an advantage over us because they saw it with their eyes. But what scripture tells us is that we actually have an added benefit, that we get to just simply believe and God goes to work. And so I think what we need to do as people who perhaps worry about fear of persecution or mockery or contempt is we need to learn to believe that God can get us through whatever we might face. We need to look at passages like this to remind ourselves of how God has done it time and time again. We need to look at stories through history of how God has provided for people. And there's all sorts of biographies that we can read of missionaries who face this, of people who have gone as church leaders and, and face this kind of opposition. I would encourage us as Christians to read beyond, right, the Bible's our primary text, but read beyond to understand how God has moved so that we can grow. We also need to be a people who remember time and time again what God can do way beyond what anyone else can do. And that's just reminding ourselves that God has freed us from our sin. God was able to send his son Jesus to live a perfect life and through his willingness to die on the cross, go to the grave, and then rise to life, was able to separate us from the punishment of death and eternal separation from a perfect and holy God. If God can do that for you and for me, and through, for Christians throughout centuries, he can do anything. The key to making it through opposition is to remember God's power and the work that he's shown in our lives. The apostles knew this, and so they pressed on in. But it wasn't just that first wave that hit them, but another one of opposition came as well. And we can read about this in verses 26 to 33, but let me just read a couple of those verses. So it says, after they've been escaped and they found the apostles, the captain with his officers went and they brought the apostles with them, though they didn't use force because they feared that the people would stone them. And the apostles were then brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. And the high priest sort of accuses them. He says, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Now it's interesting because we don't actually read a lot of the opposition perhaps from our cultural perspective into this situation. But let's not forget the Sanhedrin is the creme de la creme of society. This is the rich, this is the powerful, this is the famous. This is everybody you want to be. This is not the people you want to tick off. This is the people you want to be with. 
And so for the Sanhedrin to go and grab these men from the temple courts and haul them away again is a public mockery. These are people who are from an honor and shame culture where to be shamed publicly is an utter disgrace for you, your family, and everything you're associated with. This is a big deal, what they are doing to these men. Even though they don't do it forcefully, they make a mockery of them. But we see what's really going on inside. As one writer points out, what's going on is that these men are guilt-ridden with their sin. They say, come on, you guys are making us look bad, and you're trying to make us feel guilty for the blood of Jesus. There's a lot of irony here. I mean, these are the same people who, when Jesus was put on trial, were going through the crowds bribing people to say, crucify him. The blood is on their hands. And they're guilt-ridden with that fact. And they're being driven crazy. I picture this as like that Hamlet moment where they're trying to wash the blood off their hands, but they keep seeing it. This is driving them insane. And it's even worse because it's by people who are displacing them as the examples and the leaders who people should follow. Now the apostles are facing a lot here. They're facing people trying to reverse shame onto them. They're, fa- they're people who are facing being publicly ridiculed in this honor and shame society. They're people who are facing the people that they want to be with and like rejecting them and trying to push them to the outside yet despite the fact that they face all of that opposition they respond with incredible buoyancy because they know that they're anchored in they know they're holding on to something that will keep them afloat even when the biggest waves come crashing in peter and the apostles reply in verse 29 we must obey god rather and humans. And they remind them of who this God is. This is the God of our ancestors, the one who raised Jesus from the dead. Remember the guy you killed by hanging on a cross? God has exalted that man to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance, to the forgiveness of their sins. We are witnesses of these things, just as is the Holy Spirit, the one who's given to all those who will obey him. Instead of giving in or paddling away from the opposition, the apostles press on in. And they press in because they know they're on the side of the risen Christ. They say, we can be fearless because God's more powerful than you. The guy you killed, he raised. The guy you mocked, God glorified. The one who you deserve punishment from has come to allow you to repent so you can be forgiven. Now, I don't know what gave the apostles this courage because I think this is rather a great boldness, but I think, again, what they did is they just drew themselves to inside and knew the God they were working with. We know these are also good Jewish men, these apostles who would have known the stories, and I'm sure there were moments where perhaps they felt like Daniel and his friends when they faced Nebuchadnezzar. Maybe they felt like Moses going to Pharaoh, this guy who kept saying, stop talking to me about your people, when Moses just kept going, no, I'm here 
for what God has. Maybe they felt like Elijah when he stood against the prophets of Baal only to face the most biggest of ridicule so that he can prove that God really does win. Whatever was going on in their minds, we see that these are the things that have been carried through history. And we see that the knowledge of the anchor of worshiping and following God, a risen Savior, allows us to press on in. And what's better than pressing in is that as we press in, the Holy Spirit begins to breathe. We see that there's this tie-in where they say when we obey God, the Holy Spirit comes into our life. As we obey God, we've seen the move and the power of the Spirit. They saw it in the, whole, in the upper room as they were praying and as they were seeking God. We see what happens? Pentecost. We see the move of the Holy Spirit who comes and lays on them. We see that as they go and they face persecution and mockery in the streets where people are like, these guys filled with joy are really just drunk. They say, no, we're obeying God and he's filling us with great joy and with his power. And through that, 3,000 people are added to the church in a single day. Peter stood and he said, you want to get through the opposition? You press into obedience and then that's when the Holy Spirit comes to life a lot of us when we face doubt and fear and when we go out into the world and maybe face some level of opposition we often come cowering in say that's too big i'm going to screw it up i'm not going to know what to say i'm going to be mocked maybe i'm going to be called a bigot or an idiot or some other name and we repeal but what we see is blatantly taught in scripture is that if we want to see the holy spirit work and we want to come to life in these things we first have to obey our courage our boldness our strength in the spirit all come not from waiting but from stepping out and pushing on in if you've ever sat there and said, I wonder where the Holy Spirit is in my life, I'd love for you to ask yourself these three questions. Am I living in the way that God calls me to live? If you're not being obedient in the small things and the things that God is calling you to do, you will experience less of what the Holy Spirit wants to do in and through you. It's not because he's not capable, but it's because he wants to partner with us. The Holy Spirit will still be at work. God will still accomplish his will. But if we want to be a part of that and experience the fullness of that, we have to live in God's will. That's a fact. We see it time and time and again in Scripture. The next question, if we want to go and live for our faith, is to ask ourselves, am I listening and obeying those nudges I feel about my faith? What I'm supposed to share, what I'm supposed to encourage, when I'm supposed to give God the glory in a conversation with somebody in some situation, am I living and leaning in to those nudges? You know, I have found that it is much easier to share my faith when I'm doing it time and time again. And it's not because I become some expert. I screw up the words all the time. I make a fool of myself, but God's never made a fool of because he works. And what I've found is that the more times that I turn and listen to God and actually obey when I feel a nudge is more and more of those opportunities come up and more and more fruitfulness happens 
in those conversations. Why? Because I'm obeying. And that's when the Holy Spirit witnesses, just like he did with Peter and the other apostles. The third question, which is the big one, though, is am I willing to share my faith even when I face fill in the blank, rejection, the fear of saying the words wrong, the fear of being called in any myriad of those names? What is it? You know, it's easy to share faith or say, oh, you know, I want to give God glory for this. We might not use that word, but that's what we're saying. You know, we might do that easily on a Sunday in a community group, but are we doing it when we're face to face with that wave that's pressing in? I believe that if we're willing to, we're going to be able to pop up on the other side and see how the spirit can carry us through. If your spiritual life seems flat, you seem overwhelmed by doubt or uncertainty. It's not God. It's time to look at you and your obedience. The Holy Spirit's power is prevalent when we say yes to following him. And the apostles do this. And they press in and they do face, even within this story, a third wave of persecution. Pressing in and, and saying, this is the reality, folks. This is the wake-up call. God never paints this beautiful picture that it's going to be easy. Sometimes when we press on in, things get difficult. We look, because as Peter says that, what happens? They get enraged in verse 33. When they heard this, this is the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders. When they heard this, they're furious and decide they want to put them to death. Just as we killed Jesus, time to buckle up and kill all these guys too. And so they're ready for a fight. And they're ready to push them down. That is until Gamaliel steps in. Now, if you don't know who Gamaliel is, that's okay. But for those who would understand this culture, Gamaliel is a big deal. He, he's like one of the coolest guys from ancient history. He's this like old wise man who's uh, a Jewish religious leader. He's a descendant of another uh, great uh, Jewish teacher who had given all these ancient Jewish wisdom sayings. And, and, and that guy was smart, but Gamaliel's even wiser. He's like the, the real life Gandalf of, of life. Like this guy is legit. I love him. And, and, and he's so respected that one of the most important Jewish texts, the Mishnah, says this about him. It says, since Rabbi Gamaliel the elder died, there has never been more reverence for the law, and purity and, abst and uh, abstinence have died out the same. What that means is they said this guy was the pinnacle of what Jewish life and leadership looks like. This guy is the purest form of what it means, in the Jewish mind, of what it means to follow God. This guy is next to him. He knew it. He understood it. He lived it. This guy is him. And so when Gamaliel stands up in the middle of this court debate as one of the chief teaching elders of the people, everybody listens in. And Gamaliel leans into his wisdom in this moment and he says, guys, 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 guys. Let's not do God's job for him. And he points to a couple of examples that have happened. He points to this guy Judas and this guy Thetis. And he says, you know what? These other guys tried to start a movement. And yeah, no, they even gained, uh, you know, like one guy, 400 guys. Uh, the other guy, a few hundred. But, but look what happened. 
they tried to make themselves God or equal to him or be his examples, and look what happened to them. They died because God wasn't with them. Amalel says God does what God wants to do. God's going to accomplish what, what God's plan is. And so let's let him start it out. If these guys aren't the real deal, if Jesus wasn't the risen Savior, if this isn't what is supposed to happen, God's going to take care of them. But if God's in this, I don't want to be on the wrong side. And neither should we. So let's back it on back. Now he knows, he plays it politically, and he says, so you guys want to kill him, I'm saying we should leave him, so let's just whip him a few times. And so we see that in uh, verse 40 and 41, the disciples end up getting flogged probably 39 times with a whip. I mean, this isn't a good time. This isn't anything any of us would want, but look at what the apostles' response is. In verse 41 we read, the apostles left the Sanhedrin, bloodied up, beaten up, whip marks across their back. It doesn't say that, but we know from the rest of the text it's implied. They said they left the Sanhedrin rejoicing. They're celebrating. They're partying. We've just been beaten. We've just been imprisoned. We've just been made a mockery of. We've just been put to shame in our culture. This is awesome. Why? Because we've been counted worthy of the suffering of disgrace. For the name of Jesus. Jesus had taught them earlier. And we studied this uh, earlier on when we looked at the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. God actually has a blessing for you if you're willing to put yourself on the line for him. And they experienced it. They experience joy in the midst of opposition. They experience an overwhelming sense of celebration because they knew that the God who they were serving, who they were looking for affirmation from, was the one who was smiling down on them. This is what it takes to face opposition. Todd preached about it last week. Who are we trying to please? Who are we trying to live our life for? Is it for other people? Or for, is it for the God who loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us, that he raised him back to life for us so that we could be forgiven of every sin, so that we could avoid every penalty we ever deserve because we have faith in him? How far are we willing to take that faith? How far are you willing to trust him? How far are you willing to go to be obedient to the call of the God who loves you? Now let's not be ridiculous. We're never going to face the persecution that these guys face. I've heard a lot of people over the last few years talking about the persecution that's been heaped on it. Get over it. <laughs> that's not true. We, we, we don't face what they face. I've had the privilege of also worshiping with the underground church in Southeast Asia. I've seen and heard stories of what people will go through. We won't face that kind of persecution. But at the same time, let's not be dismissive. There's a reality to the fact that we live in a world that no longer accepts Christianity as the norm. We are in a post-Christian culture. 
There is legitimacy to your fear that people will call you an idiot for what you believe amongst many other far nastier words. There is a reality that there might come a day in our lives when we will face opposition and persecution that will become far more uncomfortable than anything that you or I have ever faced. And so the question is, what are you doing to prepare for it? What are you going to do to push through it? Are you going to be ready to duck and dive under that wave and anchor yourself in the buoyancy that comes from trusting the God who loves you, the God who has called you, the God who wants you to serve and be a part of what he's doing? Or are you going to sloppily push in and just let that wave beat you into the sand? Jesus found his greatest joy in the face of the most difficult circumstance. His death and separation from his loving father brought all of us who are believers closer to him. Will we live like Jesus? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. God, I thank you for the example of the early church. God, I'm so thankful I didn't have to live it. But Lord, I, I live with this tension reality of knowing that with every passing day, our, our culture pushes against the faith. We live with that tension of knowing that, that, that sometimes people will reject us or mock us to our face or behind our backs because of the things we say we believe. And Lord God, I pray for bigger faith for me and for our church community. I pray that you would help us to trust and believe in who you are and what you can accomplish. I pray that you'd help us to continue to anchor ourselves in to these passages so that we could trust and believe in what you will do for us because of what you have done and been doing through the lives of those in the past. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would be a people who really are constantly reminded of what you have gone through so that we might have life. Holy Spirit, would you become prevalent as we step out in obedience? Give us the courage. Give us the strength to take small steps every day so that we would be able to take bigger ones the day after. God, we want to see more people one to you. We want to, to be like the early church that was, was known for the hope and healing that it provided to the community. And Lord, I know there's so many people who look at the church and say, what do they have to offer? And I pray that we would have a lot. Because we do. Because we have you. And so Lord, allow us to anchor in that every single day. Be with us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.